I told you last week, um, when we got to Psalm 40, the dust has settled. Uh, what he's been walking through in 37 and 38 and 39, he's finally got to the other side of this. If we're right in thinking that 37, 38, 39, 40, all these psalms go together. So if that's the case, and, and most uh, pretty solid commentators say so, you can look at verse 1 and see where he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined, literally bent over like a parent would to a small child. He inclined to me, heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. In fact, the word waited is very emphatic. It's repeated twice. And you can read it as, I waited and waited patiently, or there's a couple of different ways to say that. Waiting, I waited. In other words, however you want to try to put emphasis on this, you get the impression that David really had to restrain his soul and wait patiently and longingly on the Lord to move on his behalf. So we've gotten to the other side of this. So when you go back and you read 37, 38, 39, and 40, you gain a lot better understanding of really how we need to respond when we walk through difficulties. Now, I, I always warn you guys, be careful reading something into the text. But I noticed something uh, back in 37 that I had never noticed before after we walked through what we did this morning when I was talking about the first thing that God does in equipping us is to lay out his principles or his wisdom. You remember me talking about this morning? I really want to go back to Romans 6 tonight, but I can't. We've got to save that for Sunday morning. But we live by principles. We live based on the Word of God. And then we apply those principles to our life, right? Well, I noticed when I went back and read through 37 today is it's all principles from beginning to end. There is really no first person reference in the whole of the passage. Even when he's speaking first person in 37, look at, look at 3725. Here's the first person, but it comes to us in a principle. 3725, I have been young and now I am old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. In other words, it's a principle that you could apply to life. And it's very different if you'll notice verse 38. Uh, look at verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities have gone over my head and they are a heavy burden that weigh too much for me. That, that reads completely differently. And so let's see if we can put this in a reasonable order. 37 prepares you on the, with the wisdom of God for how to walk through difficulties in life. I mean, look. Look back at verse 7. This is where he was talking, 37.7. This is where he was laying out the principles for waiting on the Lord. And he instructs him, Rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the wicked man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. Verse 10, yet in a little while the wicked will be no more and you'll look carefully for his place, but he won't be there. 
but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity and on and on and on and on it reads. In other words, 37 sounds like a preacher that's going through principles of Scripture that you need to understand before you walk through difficulty. Does that make sense to you guys? So if you're, if you're going to hammer down and, and apply and, and learn some things and memorize some things and meditate on some things to prepare you for difficult days, what psalm are you going to sit down on? 37. 37 is the training ground for difficulties. And it's like they're connected, but it's like he just rolls from the next principle of application to the next one until he gets to the end of the psalm. 38 is personal reflection. 38 is like, okay, in the midst of this thing, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to call out to God in repentance for my personal sin, and I'm going to call out to God for deliverance from my enemies. This one is a totally different tone. Look, look at, um, again, the passages just read. Verse 3, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, no health in my bones because of my sin. It's very personal. But if you look over in verse 19, my enemies are vigorous and they're strong. Many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who repay evil for good, those who oppose me. Because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Again, it reads entirely differently. So he's, if I'm understanding this right, and the only reason I say that is because this just dawned on me today, so I've got to spend some more time with it. But 37, he's gaining understanding, which reminds us of Proverbs, right? We're supposed to seek for wisdom. We're supposed to gain understanding. So he does that in 37, now he's prepared. He walks into 38 and he goes, okay, it, it's all gone south. So it's time for me to reflect on my own life. And the first thing that I come to is I've got to confess my sin to the Lord. I found myself in trouble and I'm going to pour out my heart in confessing my sin to the Lord. And then secondly, he asks God for deliverance from those people that despise him and hate him that he knows has turned against him. Now, how does this apply for us? Because I don't, I don't reckon there's anybody that despises and hates any of us, unless, of course, they're family. I guess we've all got some weird family that runs south that doesn't like us so much. But for the most, we don't have enemies physical, but we do have enemies spiritual. And that's very clear to us. Scripture communicates that to us. We always have spiritual enemies who are against us. So all of this period of reflection applies to us greatly in 38. Find yourself in trouble. You're going to remember or recall the wisdom of God and you're going to walk in the wisdom of God. But also you're going to reflect on yourself and go, wait a minute. My attitudes and my actions don't reflect the glory of God. I'm going to go to God in repentance. And then I'm going to ask God for deliverance in case this is a spiritual issue where an enemy has, my spiritual enemy has attacked me. Unless Satan himself has drawn up against me and I'm suffering this because of a spiritual issue. That's 38. You get into 39. This is where we were last week. And this is the most important one to me because this is the one where he learns the lesson. And I talked about that when we went through 39. If it wasn't for the wisdom gained in 37, 
and the personal reflection and confession in 38, we wouldn't have a gained understanding of 39 and therefore worship in 40 would be very shallow. But because we've lived according to the wisdom of God, because we've opened up our hearts in 38 and examined ourselves, we've learned something in 39 and now our worship is from the depth of our soul. I, I told you this, guys, last week. If you've learned something, worship is easy. It's just like you're on an island and you don't even know anybody else is here. You're just so filled with praise to God for what you've understood and how he's carried you through the storm. So you get to 40 and you're like, I don't care. I'm worshiping God. But if you don't live according to the principles in 37 and you don't even take the time to personally reflect on what's going on in your own heart, you don't learn the lesson in 38 and your worship in, in or you don't learn the lesson in 39 and your worship in 40 is, what song did you sing this morning? I don't remember what songs we sang. I was kind of checked out. I was struggling this morning in worship. That's kind of how it goes. So, you know, I want you to, I want you to spend some time with these and I, and I want you to see the flow in these things and, and, and apply these things because these are, these are things that are very important for us to understand what David's doing and, and learn to apply. So as the principle goes, uh, back in 37.7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. David says as a preacher, 40 verse 1, that is in fact exactly what I did. I waited patiently for the Lord and he bent over and heard my cry and he lifted me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. Man, that is such a graphic picture of his trouble and you know that we have no clue of what his trouble is, which makes it even more useful for us. Because if you knew what the trouble was, all of a sudden you've limited the usefulness. Right? That's why, you know, we've talked with these guys that get behind the pulpit. And I said, just always be careful with your application. Don't do too much. Because if you apply it, and that's not what's going on in your congregation's lives, they check out. Because you've applied it, to, applied it to something that has nothing to do with their life. Yet if you just preach the principles and the truths of Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to work, you can hit everybody in the room more like a shotgun than it is a BB gun, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so you've got to be careful with application. David was careful with application. And so he just simply says, God lifted me out of this boggy pit almost like a picture of quicksand, and he, he put my feet on a firm place to stand. But if you think about it, that's exactly how you feel when you find yourself in trouble. It's just like deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper you go. This is that, uh, what do they call that around here, Chris? Gumby mud that we find in Sand Mountain when you start digging? you just like you can't find the bottom of it. Uh, I tried to dig a pond one time, and I finally gave up. I just could not find the bottom of it. It was just... Sticky mud after sticky mud after sticky mud. And, you know, 
was on a bulldozer and I thought, I'm going to quit before I get the bulldozer stuck because I couldn't just reach the bottom of it. That's what serious trouble is like in our life. It's just like deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you're like, I'm not going to reach the bottom of this. And that's when our Lord picks us up and puts our feet down somewhere that's stable and strong. All of a sudden we have a firm place to stand because it's the Lord who has delivered us. So you even got to appreciate verse 2 just because of the fact that David says, I'm not even going to tell you what it is because it's very personal to me and likewise your trouble sometimes is very personal to you. But because of the deliverance, what do we have in verse 3? We've talked about this phrase. Let me ask you a question. What's a new song stand for? Or what's a new song represent? A new understanding. We talked about new mercies, right? I've gone through a new trial. God's taught, taught me something new. And now I've got a new song in my mouth. I found some fresh and new mercy from God. And it means something unique to me. And I just want to praise the Lord for it. You know, we just walked through something, right? I mean... Trusting in the Lord, we're on the other side of this thing. But what we experienced secondhand from what Tyler and Wallace experienced is totally a new experience for us. And this morning, we were in such a rush, I just wanted to hit reverse and go back and let's just pause and either sing or clap or praise God for the fact that Tyler and Wallace got to take the CPAP off the baby and just hold the baby this morning. And Wallace ate today. You know, those are new mercies for us because, you know, we, we we've kind of I mean, this has been pretty personal for us because they're a part of us, you know, very much so. And we just watched Wallace lay in a hospital bed for how many months? Three, three months with not able to eat anything, constantly vomiting every day. And when you think about that, all of us, you know, we were like, mm, no, sir, especially in a foreign land and not being home and not being around family. And she had to walk a very, very, very difficult road that's totally unique for this body. And now we were to the other side of this thing. Hopefully we can say we waited patiently on the Lord because we all were praying, knowing that nobody can really do anything about this but the Lord. And so we've gotten to the other side of this thing and we've seen God's deliverance for, you know, Wallace and Zachary. And so we got a new song in our mouth. We have a new story to tell. And we've got the opportunity to tell that come Monday morning when we find, uh, find an opportunity at work to talk to somebody. And we say, hey, let me just tell you about the mercy of God and, and what he did in our body, in our family of faith with Tyler and Wallace and a little boy named Zachary. It's a new song. It's a new story. It's a new testimony. And so when you go through these things, we'll find out when we get on, to this, get on through this psalm, you know you're going to be delivered. It's not as though you're not. Because nobody's got a testimony of not being delivered. We've all got testimonies of being delivered time and time and time and time and time again. You'll get to the other side, okay? But you've also got to realize I've got to learn something because I want a fresh opportunity to praise God for something that's never happened in my life. 
And now that it is, I want to tell other people I want to worship God for what he's done. I would imagine that I could probably stop right here and just go around the room and ask some of you guys about unique things that God has done in your life where he's delivered you. And you don't know anybody else that walked through that, but you walked through that and you just want to praise God for it, right? So verse 3, that's what David's doing. God has put a new song in his mouth, a song of praise to our God. And look what happens if we're faithful. And I say if we're faithful, sometimes we're not faithful and people pick up on it anyway. But in the faithfulness of David in waiting upon the Lord, many, plural, will see, they will fear, and they will trust in the Lord. So, you know, you get to work in the morning and you're just talking about what God did in Wallace and Zach, Zachary's life. That may be the last brick to fall for somebody to trust the Lord. You just don't know. When you begin to sing your new song, that might be that last thing where the Spirit of God moves that out of their way so their heart can open up to the glories of God and they're going to trust the Lord because they cannot believe what God has done in your life and so they want the same thing for their life. And so David says this, my new song, listen, when I sing it, there's going to be a whole lot of people that's going to trust the Lord because it's absolutely amazing what the Lord has done for me. You know, that's... That's why we give our testimony. Um, it encourages the faith of those in faith, but it also encourages the faith in someone who's yet to come to that place where they've trusted the Lord. Parents, sing often to your kids. Because you're praying for their faith, right? And you're teaching them the gospel, but if you'll sing those songs often and say... Y'all just sit down. Let me tell you what the Lord's done in me and your mom's life. Paige and I have done that for years. And we usually did it at supper. Let me tell you what the Lord did today. That is the most significant person you can tell. Because you are doing everything that you can do to, to foster this faith along in their life. And when they see that in mom and dad, guess what they're going to want? Same thing mom and dad had. They'll admire that faith and they'll follow in that faith. So many will see, many will fear, and many will trust in the Lord. Let me go, let me go further with that thought. I would imagine probably everybody in this room has got people in their family that have yet to trust the Lord. And I realize that causes a lot of Oh, sadness is a mild word, isn't it? Breaks your heart. Pray for them all the time. And every time that you get, you want to get to the gospel. And that's good. But don't forget, when you have opportunity and you've got a new song in your mouth, just sing that song. Just tell them what the Lord has done for you and just let it rest on their soul. And that's a heavy burden to bear. Because they know they don't have what you have. They know there's not a song in their mouth. And they admire your singing about it and praising about it and testifying about it. And they do want that. 
That is one of the most attractive things. In fact, I tell you what, you, you can try me on this. You get to work and you sing one of your new songs and you watch every one of them get quiet. It happens without fail. Because you have just lit a match on their soul and they're just thinking about what God has done. Because you've made God so real and so personal in your testimony, they don't know what to do with that. But they do realize they don't have that. And so this is very important for us to begin to put these things into practice. And it all starts with, hey, let me tell you. Let me tell you what the Lord did. Miss Burma does that to me all the time. Let me tell you what the Lord did. It's very powerful. Now you get to four and five. And David, who was a preacher in 37, has all of a sudden internalized these principles that he had in his mind. In other words, let's say you memorize the passages in 37. But when you get to 40 verses four and five, they're not just up here in your head. Now they're down here in your heart. Okay. Notice what he says in four, uh, 4 and 5. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. And David says, I know it for certain now because I told you to wait in verse 37. I get to 40 and I said, I waited and I waited. And now he gets to verse 4 and he says, Oh, how blessed is the man who waited and waited upon the Lord or put his trust in the Lord. I know it personally. I had it memorized, but now I know it personally. And then notice what he says. He has not turned to the proud, nor those who lapse into falsehood or lies. In other words, here's basically two categories that you can go to if you don't want to trust in the Lord. You can trust in yourself and your own wisdom. We'd call that pride. Does God like pride? No, he hates it. He, in fact, he says, I hate it. The second thing you can do is you can trust in a lie. I found myself in something and I'm going to deliver myself because I'll just lie. Now, both of those is nothing but pure idolatry. Anytime that you don't trust in the Lord, you are an idolater. You've put your trust in something else. You're going to trust because you're in trouble. And so you're either going to trust in some sort of falsehood or lie in order to deliver yourself. Or you're going to trust in your own strength and your own ability or someone else's strength and ability to deliver you. And the moment you do that, you've committed yourself to idolatry because you've chosen not to trust in the Lord. And so David says here, listen, I know by personal experience, you will be blessed if you will trust in the Lord and don't turn to the right or to the left. Just wait right here upon the Lord to deliver you, right? How blessed is the man, verse 4, who has made the Lord his trust, has not turned to the proud, not to those who lapse into falsehood. And then he's, here, this is what he's learned about God. He's internalized this. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. Your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, the wonders, they would absolutely be too, number, too numerous to count. So David's reflecting on the blessings of the Lord, which he refers to as wonders. And he says, you know, I just can't count them. I, I would guess. Ms. Burma, you think you could count them? 
Well, why didn't you teach Psalm 40 tonight? <laughs> I just interrupted him. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Barbara, can you count them? No. I mean, literally, guys. And I found this to be true. The more things that you express thanksgiving to God for, the more you realize you, I can't, I can't catch up with Him. I just simply can't count them. And we've really tried to get this principle, I guess, or this truth instilled in our kids' heart because we thank God for everything. Thank God for, you know, the food on the table. I pray with my eyes open now. I don't know, I don't know if anybody else does that. I don't like closing my eyes. Um, I'll look outside while I'm praying. I'll thank God for this, the sunshine or if it's raining. Now we've got Christmas trees. I'll thank Him for the rain. I'll look over at my wife whose eyes are closed and I'll thank God for my wife. And I'm just looking around and then I'll thank God for my kids. I thank God when I, you know, I've talked to them. And Monday morning, I thank God for the opportunity to work. And I tell you, it, I, it blessed my soul to no end when I had asked John to pray for a meal one time. And we had worked all day and he said, God, thank you for the opportunity to work. And I thought, I know where you got that from. And so when you, when you live with that kind of perspective, all of a sudden you just throw up your hands and go, well, I just can't count them. I won't never catch up with your hand of blessing and I'm just so filled with thanksgiving for them. Now, you, you know when you begin to be that kind of person, it, it changes everything about you. Because you're not looking at, well, you know, this is wrong and, and that's wrong and I don't know what I'm going to do about that and you know, this is nothing but a problem. If you spend all your time like that, it reflects on you as well. It changes who you are versus, well, you know, I'm just, I'm thankful for Cody. I'm so thankful for Cody. I'm thankful for his kids and thankful for Eli just came to faith in Christ. And I, you just go down the list, you know, and it changes who you are, right? I'm even thankful for Cody's mom. <laughs> it changed, and this is who we need to be. As a congregation. Um, in fact, if I ever ask you, I know I've never asked you, just tell me some things you're thankful for. I mean, one of you just goes, no, preacher, we ain't got time for that. There's just too much. I got to keep going. Now, he's learned something. He's had a new experience. He's internalized some of these principles that he was talking about in 37. And now he renews his personal commitment to the Lord. Verse 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offerings you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, I don't want to get into it too much. But there's been a lot of conversation about Asbury. A lot of people referring to it as a revival. 
Well, there's two things that must happen in order for there to be a genuine revival. Number one is repentance from sin. And number two is reformation or changed behavior. Unless you've turned from your sin, unless you have renewed yourself to obeying the Word of God, there hasn't been a revival. Now, I don't know. I don't even know. We won't know for at least a year to come what really happened. But we get through a year or two and we look back on that and go, okay, who turned from sin and who now is walking in obedience to the Word of God? And if we find them, we go, that's a revival right there. See, this is what happened in David's heart. He experienced the hardship. He trusted in the principles. He gets to the other side. The principles have been made real. He's worshiping God, but not only is he worshiping God at length, but now he's recommitted himself to obeying God. That's revival. I have been changed. I'm no longer who I was. Okay? That's why, you know, I know how we do around here. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't think we've lived anywhere else or been anywhere else where they actually schedule revivals. Have we? Other than the South? I don't think the Northwest even knew what I was talking about. I know why we do it. I'm not being critical, but you do realize you can't do that. It's just not possible. Until there is repentance from sin. And by the way, somebody told me that happened at Trinity today. A man in brokenness got up and confessed his sin toward the body. I'm like, hello, we're headed toward revival. All we need now is for the body to begin confessing their sin and everybody renew themselves to the obedience of God's Word. If you want to know a place that's close to revival, I'd say Trinity's like sitting in the number one spot right now where it might happen because somebody got real about their sin in their life. This is what happens. This is what has happened to David. He goes from praising God with his new worship to self-reflection. He goes, you know what? I'm recommitting myself to obeying the will of the Lord. And unless it carries you that far, it has not accomplished its purpose. You think about that. I, hey, I get excited when y'all sing loud. I really do. I mean, some mornings y'all are really singing and I get excited about it. I get excited about when one of y'all want to pray. I, I get excited about that. I'm not saying I'm not excited, but I am saying is until somebody changes, you haven't done anything. Until you go in there, husbands, and to your wife and you say, you know, the way I've been doing you is just flat wrong. And I want you to forgive me. Until we get to the point where we've repented and done different, we haven't done anything. Okay? And we have to remember that. And if you sing for seven days in a row, that's exciting. But until you go back to work a changed man, you have not done anything. Okay? David here does, but hey, this is not only David. What is this? Where else, where else do we find this passage? Oh, y'all, come on. Hebrews chapter 10. Go with me.
Hebrews chapter 10, I guess let's start in verse 3. Uh, no, let's start in verse 4. Hebrews 10, 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Jesus, he, comes into the world, this is what he says. Sacrifice and offerings you not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Who said that? Hmm? David. Who said it, David or Jesus? Yes. <laughs> yes. Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, David was speaking um, words that the Messiah would speak. But it's interesting when Jesus said these words. Look at verse, uh, I've got to put my glasses on. Look at verse 5. When did Jesus say this? When he came into the world. Jesus said this before he ever came. Which is interesting. Because Jesus was helping us understand something about worship. Right? Sacrifices and offerings you've not required. Now can you make sacrifices and offerings without any kind of heart toward God? Yeah, you can do that all day. Can you express worship toward God but not have a heart toward God? All that happens every Sunday by the hundreds of thousands of people. Jesus comes down to it, and what really matters is, I've come to do your will. I've come to do your will. How does that passage go, Cody? I think that's one of your favorite ones. Uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? Matthew 6. Go with me to Matthew 6. No, Matthew 7. Seven twenty-one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we come down to what is truly important here. And he makes the statement that really should frighten us to death. Not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What matters here is doing the will of God. That's what matters. And so when we come back to Psalms 40s, you'll make your way back there. David is expressing something important too. Worship, you know, is worship. And it has value. But you do understand at the end of the day, what is important to God is doing what God has said. I wonder what would happen to our worship if we really bought into that. I wonder if it would change. I wonder if there'd be fewer people in worship. It's something worth thinking about. 
What if we really understood that what God is after is us obeying rather than worshiping? I wonder what all or how all that would affect the body if we truly did that. In the wisdom of God, I'm convinced that our worship would reach an entirely new level because we understand the important thing is obeying God and submitting to the Word of God. I think our worship at that point would go nuts and it would truly be worship rather than this shallow... I mean, you think about it. I've disobeyed the will of God. I've rejected the Word of God all week. But here I come on Sunday morning and worship went... I don't get this, but worship just went so far we didn't have time to preach the Word of God. Does that really even line up with this passage? Because what he's after is obedience. And if we were truly obedient to the Word of God, I bet it would make our worship maybe not hours long, but really deep. Because we've understood what it was really about. I know from my own life that I can worship and disobey His will pretty much Monday through Saturday and do a pretty good job on Sunday of singing. I've done it many a time. I think my time would have better, been better off just staying at home and watching television because I don't think God receives any of that worship. Alright, back to Psalms 40. We go from personal worship to corporate worship. Verse 9 and 10, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness. Notice all the I haves. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. We've moved from personal to corporate, and that's very important. Because now we've brought our experiences into the body, and we're encouraging the body in worship because of what God has done in us. This is, and I think I was having a conversation with Rob and, and Jeremy the other day because when you read 1 Corinthians, which I'm praying about where we'll go after Romans, worship is really not what we're doing now. I mean, as far as the makeup goes. Because worship is your participation. Not your, what's the word I'm looking for when you just watch? Observation. I needed a shun. Thank you. Worship is not observation. It's participation in 1 Corinthians. And I really want to figure that out. Because if all you do is come and sit and watch and listen, it's not really worship. But if somehow you participate in it, of course in 1 Corinthians, you know, they didn't have the Word of God, so somebody brought a, a song and somebody brought a hymn and, and somebody did this and somebody did that and somebody did this. And it seemed like the more that was involved the better it was. But see, we've radically changed worship because you file in here on Sunday morning. I'm monologue for, I don't know how long it went this morning, 45 minutes. And then you get up and leave. Jeremy sings and most of the time everybody sings along. 
but that's about the length of your participation. One fortunate thing that we do here that I don't think other, I, I've never really been in here, is we call on four different men to preach to bring in more participation, four different men to pray to bring in more participation. But you understand, worship requires participation, not observation. So David brings this into the congregation and he's leading the congregation in worship. Now, verse 11, it all goes south again. Notice with me. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head and my heart has failed me. That's the way our life will go until either Jesus returns or you pass away and go to be with Him through death. Up and down. Up and down. But listen, if you learned something from the last time you were up, going down the next time you won't go so low. Because I took all those experiences, I remembered all those principles, they became personal to me, I wrote them on my heart, so as I go back down in whatever it is, I trust that I will see the Lord shortly because the sun will come back up. <coughs> you know, just because you've had cancer does not mean you're you're saved from ever having a car wreck. Just because you've lost a spouse does not mean you'll ever lose a child. That's life. It seems as though we go from one hardship to the next and we get through that. I mean, you reflect on Sandra's life. It's pretty rough. There's been a lot of heartache. And, you know, I've, I've made the statement, I know, and I've heard some of y'all, how much, how much can one person endure, right? Well, that's the normal course of life here in our fallen world. And we have to come to that reality. And when we come to that reality, then we can turn toward the Lord, turn toward the Lord and trust Him, realizing we know it really doesn't matter about the circumstance because God's going to deliver me. He always does. And it might not, He might not deliver us to, you know, greater circumstances and health and all this sort of stuff. He might deliver us by taking us home, but God will not fail to deliver. Period. And if you can grasp this at y'all's age, when you get older, it'll be so much easier. Because we get through the other side of hardships and it's just like we relax. It's just like we... And we don't, we, we don't realize that we might wake up tomorrow and the second hardship is so much worse than the one that we just got through. But we have to follow the pattern of David. I know the principles up here. I've experienced them in here. Therefore, I can walk by faith because God has never failed 
to not deliver me. So, verse 13, he begins to pray. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Here's his enemies. He's already confessed his sins in verse 12 where he says, My iniquities have overtaken me. But now verse 14, Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Now let me pause right there. Let those who love your deliverance say continually, The Lord be magnified. In other words, here I go down again. And as I go, here are my words. The Lord be magnified. The Lord be magnified. The Lord be magnified. And no matter how bad the circumstance gets, the Lord be magnified. The Lord be praised. Right? Because I love the deliverance of the Lord and I will experience that again. And then verse 17. Since I am afflicted and needy again, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help, personal. You are my deliverer. I know it. Do not delay, oh my God. And that's his prayer. It's amazing how quickly he changed. I mean, he's singing a new song. And it's like before he even gets to the, the end of the song, here he goes back down again. And that, I mean, that's life. That really is life. But it doesn't change who He is. And it doesn't change the fact that we can trust Him in all things. Questions? Questions?